Voyagen, season three. And I love Boy. Enjoyable. It's remarkable. Lindsay. Elizabeth's Wheel, third season of Voyager. The purpose of all this is to gain knowledge of the universe and the people in it. You two are turning into a Star Trek script. Yes, it is a little bit clucky, but hopefully it will pay off in the long run. Greetings, friends, and welcome back to the beginning of Voyagern Season 3. And today we are with the Kazon Nistrum, and they are in control of Voyager. And then almost the entire crew has been marooned on a desolate primitive planet where they're fighting off primitive humanoids, a large carnivorous serpent, and some natural disasters like volcanic eruptions. Only Tom Paris, Lon Suda, and the Doctor remain at large to retake the ship. Well, I have to say that uh, my big takeaway from uh, this episode, which of course is the second part of a, a, a two-parter, we finished uh, the last season with uh, Basics Part 1 and, and we kick off Season 3 with Basics uh, Part 2. Um, and, and my big takeaway was the red shirt was a blue shirt. Uh, so I was yes. very, very taken by that. You know, it, it jarred me to my Star Trek core. No, I'm joking, of course. Um, I, I enjoyed this episode, and I know that um, uh, that uh, Elizabeth had some problems with it, so I'll, I'll look forward to that discussion. But I enjoyed it. It was a, a, a fitting finale to the whole uh, Kazon-Seska sort of arc. Uh, it was nice to see Seska get her comeuppance. Uh, the the baby, after all, is not Chakotay's, uh, according to the doctor. So we can all breathe a sigh of relief. And uh, uh, the uh, Kazon baby is going to be brought up by Kazon, which I guess is appropriate. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, nice, nice wrap up, I think. And Suter redeemed. Oh, I just, it was such an emotional moment for me when he, when he, you know, he had so few lines, but communicated so much. And it was another... Uh, I guess good testimonial to the to the acting work of Brad Dourif, um, who um, just brought his A game to this episode. I agree. I think Suter and the Doctor were the redeeming features of this episode, which I found a fabric to be so torn and tattered you could drive a double B through the holes. And and you know I, I was thinking because uh, uh, we were having that conversation last night, Elizabeth, uh, via messenger, as you, your incredulity bone was getting stretched further and further, uh, and and I thought it'd be interesting, particularly as we start a, a new season together as a crew, uh, to have a bit of a conversation about, um, you know, how much. Uh, stretching your incredulity is too much. I think it's one of the built-in factors for any kind of uh, speculative fiction is you have to, um, you know, be willing to go along for the ride. But how much is too much? Do do we have different sort of levels as to, to whether we feel comfortable or whether we think, oh, that's just rubbish, I'm not interested? What do you guys think? I felt that I can suspend it with terms of, yes, it's the... 25th century or 24th century, I can look at the technology and the technobabble and say, yep, I can cope with all of that. But once these plot holes start opening wide and gaping open, I get really annoyed. So that's the, when there's too many of them, I can cope with a couple or two or three in an episode, but when they're loaded and piled one upon the other, it just gets too much. 
whilst uh, I, I really love the episode um, and there were some really high points for it, I have to concede that I do feel like they rushed this, um, that there were there were things that they they left out um, that 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 obviously from a from a good head cannoning nerd perspective I can write into behind the curtain um, but there were there were things like there wasn't a clear transfer of information from the doctor to suitor about what button to press to make the ship go boom like there wasn't there was there were there were some scientific issues like you can't rock hop over a river of lava and not get massive burns let alone in the inhalation of of smoke there although when i was talking um to some others who had watched the episode they said well the geranium uh thread lining of the um starfleet uniforms may have protected him from such uh intense it's not heat, over his face uh, or, Will. Uh, and that's something that's something we just made up on the spot <laughs> in order to actually make that work but um yeah look for me um what bumps me out of suspension of disbelief um, is is really something that actually causes me not to remain in the immersion. Like, uh, so being immersed is actually really important for me and staying in the narrative. So, um, I, I, like, I wasn't bumped out by this episode uh, in terms of suspension of disbelief. Uh, I remained immersed, but I think that was because I was captivated by the strength of the 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 acting and the narrative of of particular stories. Rather than actually looking at the I overall the story, of the I wonder. The crew was crap. I'm sorry, Will. I thought that all oh, the whole thing on the planet was really weak. I, I wonder whether um, uh, the the response is somehow shaped also by uh, how you encounter the episode. So I I, I don't know about you, Will, but um, Elizabeth, you clearly watched uh, part two last night, having watched part one last week i actually watched both parts at once last week i thought uh, i'm i'm going to get the whole picture and i wonder whether actually watching the whole thing in one hit um actually did make it easier for me to go along for the ride because i was more interested in seeing how this story plays out and and finishes than than i was in critiquing a, an individual episode but i i think for me probably uh the thing that bumps me out um, to use that terminology, is is character discrepancies. So, you know, I, yep. things like, um, you know, people poking the, the top of the cave with spears and it collapses and stuff like that. I, that that's now, fine. Now, wait, I, I, I want to pull you up on that because... I actually think they did that well. I know that in the uh, in the Elizabeth files last night, we actually got um, reference to that as well. But but I watched it again this morning, and and Tuvok pauses earlier in the episode during an earthquake and glances up at the 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 the, the fault in the rock and scratches his chin for a moment as if observing the fact that there was a weak point mm. there. And it was Tuvok again who said. If we actually attack this weak point, then we can bring it down. So, so I, I felt they actually covered that 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 particular no, one didn't. fairly well. But but no, I agree no, with what no, you're no, saying. No. So. I don't care how many weak points Tuvok thought he could see with, and if there was an earthquake, they would not have gone into that cave. They'd be in mortal danger because caves fall in in earthquakes. Um, you know, getting your wooden sticks and just going prod 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 on a rock roof, just no will. It does not work that way. 
<laughs> Look, the other thing is that I would want to say that when we're looking at parables and stories, that sometimes that there's actually symbolism in those that actually provide a greater level of meaning. So, so they don't necessarily have to, you know, when we hear the story of the parable of the the, the good Samaritan and he's walking down the road. You know, I, I love that Monty Python sketch where they say, well, what was his name? What what time of year was it? Where, where was he going? Like there's a sense in which um, in order to convey meaning in a parable or, or narrative story, sometimes the details aren't necessary and can become cumbersome to the story. I think that's just stretching my credulity bone again, Will. I'm sorry. This is nothing <laughs> like a parable. It's meant to be for, um, presented as reality. And there's no way that a stick that you have sort of chopped a few branches off and you poke a roof with, it's not going to make it fall down. I'm sorry. And if it does going to make it fall down, you are going to be under that fall. <laughs> anyway, my, my point was, uh, regardless of the ins or outs of the, the stick and the cave thing, that kind of thing doesn't bother me. I, I'm, I'm really happy just to go, yeah, okay, whatever, fine. What, what really bothers me is when characters act out of character, in, in my opinion. You know, so when, when someone who's been faithful and trustworthy the whole way through suddenly double-crosses someone for no discernible reason. Now, sometimes that's a setup, and you're actually going to find out what was going on behind the scenes uh, to enable that to happen, and that's okay. Uh, but some some programs, you know, the, the characters are written quite quite uh, unevenly from one episode to the other. And, and that's the kind of thing that really gets me. Whereas, you know, uh, uh, indigenous compresses that work immediately to heal babies, yeah, bring it on. No, I don't no, care. No, that's no, that's no. fine. <laughs> no, not buying that either. What I want to know is, uh, and, uh, and, uh, is, is everyone else gets filthy. The captain's hair gets messed up. Um, Paris has got grease all over his face. Others have got torn uniforms. But Chakotay stays pristine. <laughs> he, there's not a mark on him throughout the entire... And they're all sitting there on the bridge at the end as I was watching it just before, and I'm going, so they're all still messed up. But Chakotay's sitting there and he's like, I think he's Superman. I think that nothing sticks well, to him. He's, he's amazing. Even if he is the only Indigenous person on the planet uh, in the universe who actually can't start a fire with two sticks. Well, he did manage eventually when he got everyone to start chopping their hair off. Um, so he got there in the end. <laughs> but, you know, he does stay pristine. I thought Tuvok mm. was reasonably pristine too. Well, and, and I thought that was particularly good um, as they were walking in the early stages. Uh, Chakotay orders everybody not to sweat. Did you catch that? That's right. <laughs> like, we've got to save water. Nobody perspire. I go, what? I, wow. I don't know about you, but I can't actually stop perspiring so by much force in there of will. I wanted to get a wall and bang my head against it. Honestly, I did. <laughs> Um, with regard to that sort of survivalism, uh, I mean, I think actually that one uh, w was okay because I think the, the point is don't overexert yourself so as to sweat, you know, try and minimise the amount of effort you put in. Um, but but I did think it was interesting that the, the whole group immediately um, rely on Star Trek, Star Trek rank and, you know, who's in charge is not necessarily... Uh, you know, a conversation about, well, 
has anyone actually got survivalist skills? Is there anyone who, you know, has spent a lot of time camping or, or uh, you know, working in the rough or whatever? They don't have that conversation. It's just Janeway immediately takes charge and she grabs her officers uh, to head up the different teams. And, and it did seem to me that it was an example of, of the difference between giftedness and hierarchy that sometimes in the church, uh, you know, I think we have a tension around that. And and uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the biblical record in the New Testament is, is very um, heavily into this idea that, you know, God gives different gifts to people and people should use those gifts for the building up of the body. And yet as humans, we often still want to fall into sort of hierarchical modes of thinking and, oh, well, I'm the official blah, 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 or I'm the minister, I'm the this, I'm the that. Uh, and, and, and we rely on those sort of ranks rather than the giftedness. I think that's right. And I think the first time I actually watched Star Trek again after so many decades, uh, I think it might have been a Deep Faith episode um, that I watched with Will, but it was um, shocked me, the hierarchy all over again about how militarised it mm. was, you know, where you've got all these ranks and nobody really breaks ranks and you end up in the brig if you do try and break a rank or do something wrong, you know. And I figured that they can't help themselves. By the time they're stuck on this desert, you know, especially being in Voyager for so long for this point in time, they just can't help themselves. That is the way it is. Yeah, I really like that too. And and I, I picked that up also from the, the ship side of things as well, that what we ended up with was that there was, there was no nobody from the hierarchy was left. And so the three, uh, you know, weakest members uh, in terms of often um, considered to their ability to, 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 to follow hierarchy or to participate within the system were actually all left to actually work out how they were going to use their gifts in such a way to restore Voyager. And so you've got the doctor who's actually saying, you know, I'm a doctor, not a counterinsurgent. Um, you've got um, you've got Suda who's been isolated because of social concerns and, and Paris who's had a checkered history. Um, so the, the three of these three misfits, this 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 dirty triplet, because uh, they're not quite a dozen, um, had to had to be the ones to save the day, which I, I thought was a fascinating um, piece of yeah, I like um, that. narrative. Yeah, I, I have to say, you've also touched on uh, one of my quotes of the week. I, I actually highlighted about three for this uh, episode, and that was the doctor where he, he says, uh, what am I supposed to do? Lead a revolt with the gang from Sandrine's? <laughs> Conjure up holograms of Nathan Hale and Shay Guevara. I'm a doctor, not a counterinsurgent. Oh, the- now, I had to look up Nathan Hale, um, but I've discovered that he was a, uh, a Civil War spy. Um, and interestingly, um, uh, Che Guevara was an Argentinian, Argentinian doctor revolutionary. Um, so so both of those are really interesting characters for him. To not, not the Civil War, I don't think, Will, actually. The War of uh, the Revo- Independence. Yeah. The, yeah. Independence. Yeah. Sorry, yes, the Doctor revolution. Had some great lines. You're not just a hologram. You're a Starfleet hologram. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very good, yeah, yeah. Mm. And a good one for you, Elizabeth, in disliking this episode. He said, uh, sticks and stones won't break my bones, so don't even get me started on what (laughs) names will do, like, you know. 
I thought yes, that was quite right. good as well. My favourite was where he's talking to Seska and she says, you're more talented at the art of deception than you led me to believe. And the doctor says, I was inspired by the presence of a master. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he certainly was was ripping out the he lines this, this week. He, he just uh, had the some good The doctor made ones. it worth watching, I thought. And I thought um, the character of Suda was pretty good as well. Tom Paris, I'm sorry, I found that pretty weak. I mean, when his best quote is, I have a plan, I'll have to try and think of one. Come on. <laughs> I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this. Uh, I, I did think, though, that his uh, his hat tip to Top Gun, put on the brakes and fly right by, was actually a good manoeuvre. Um, and uh, I think uh, I think we'll have to call that one the Tom Cruise manoeuvre uh, in, in, uh, in uh, history there. Was there was a lot of... Um, Cadrillity uh, stretching around that, though, Will, because here are we've got these ferocious Kazons firing on him, not seemingly making a dent, and then he, when he does his top gun stop dead, of course he hits them and blows them up first hit. Get out of it. Of, of course, but we've been saying for two seasons that Tom Paris is the greatest pilot that ever lived. I mean, we, we you know, we're, we're seeing, I think, the beginnings of Captain Proton oh. coming to the fore here. I'm looking forward to that. I, I'm wondering, as I'm listening to this conversation, whether there's a sort of an analogy with um, ways in which different people respond to the Christian story, um, you know, because I, I, I suspect that, uh, you know, for Will or for myself, watching Voyager... It's not nearly so much about the plot. It's about being once more with characters that you love, being immersed in an environment and with people that that you love and care for. Um, and 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 it's almost that comfort. It's like comfort food. You know, you you settle in and you ah, oh, it's Chicote, ah, oh, it's Janeway, ah, oh, it's Seven of Nine. You know, I, I feel good, and and I don't really care that much about you know the. The, the way that the plot um, sort of goes out and uh, whether there are little plot holes here or there. And, and I think for some people it's the same with the Christian story, you know. Uh, those who are more sceptical say, how can you possibly believe this? Or haven't you seen how the Gospels differ on this? Or, you know, this doesn't seem to be, um, you know, actually making sense. Um, but for other people, it's actually about, well, I I'm not looking at the story that way. I'm looking at it as something that that gives me comfort and makes me feel warm and 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 connects me with my history. Uh, don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. Mm, I think there's some truth in that. I'd probably want to push that further, Lindsay, and say it's not just the comfort zone of the story, but the comfort zone of the church itself. Like the Church of Star Trek, for me, entering into this sacred edifice. It's really difficult for me because I don't know the characters. I have no idea of the words that you and Will use at times when you refer to upcoming things or things that have been in the past. I don't understand the history and the wars and what race fought what race or how the, they mapped out the universe or the, where they are in the cosmos is what quadrant and why. I know none of that. So the only thing I've got to hang my hat on is the story when I'm watching it, really. Mm. And for me, it's like coming into a church where people know everything and they're in a clique and they're comfortable and they get it all. And I've walked in as this total misfit. And it's a question of, could I? can I stay here? Um, does this work it's when I'm following something different and don't have the knowledge of the rest of you? I'm like a newcomer into a congregation. Will you hang on to me? Yeah. How will that work? 
And and what's fascinating with that, Elizabeth, is just how essential your voice is in this in this crew. Like there was a there was an intentionality of actually forming this this team um, for this series, so that we would not just have these uniform voices. And I think sometimes when we're forming church councils and leadership structures, we we don't do that. We tend to look for the we're, we're back to that giftedness hierarchy question again. We often look and say. Who would be the best person for this for this job? Well, let's get three nerds to talk about Star Trek. And if we had have done that, then there would have been significant conversations that we've had over the last two seasons that we just wouldn't have had. Um, and so I think there's a big lesson for us to learn there about, about that um, as well. Also... On that, since we were talking about the credulity of the of the of the Bible, um, you know, when I read Acts, um, which is probably the the most supposed to be the most grounded of them, you know, this is the the idea of the early church. It's actually doing things, but they're picking up snakes and not dying. They're uh, healing people during laborious sermons after they've fallen out of windows. Um, you know, there's all of these stories. There's even a story of a couple there who get killed because they didn't put the money in the plate the right way. Um, you know, that 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 we, we kind of just uh, bounce across the top of these stories often without actually asking the kinds of incredulity questions that I think we need to ask. Or we actually say, well, they're there to provide a particular kind of meaning, um, and so it's it's actually the analogy breaks down if we ask I think too that's many questions. Right. I mean, the more I read Acts, the less I think it's grounded in reality. Um, I'd really question how much of it is the, the detail is in fact historical, um, for a number of reasons. Even if we just take Paul's account of his conversion. His own account in Galatians is rather different <laughs> to the account that's given in the book of Acts. Uh, so, you know, there's one sample there and there's all sorts of things like the Holy Spirit picking people up and dropping them in other countries or towns and other stuff that's going mm. on. Transporter uh, well, technology it for Philip. It's great. So cool. I think it's more it's a, more about the story in Acts. It's more about the theology of the story in Acts and what's going on. If you try and dissect it as history, you're going to end up in a nasty place. And and I think yep. just to continue with what we've been saying that uh, it, it's it's a fantastic discipline and, and and an enjoyable thing I think for Will and for myself to constantly be um, rubbing up against you Elizabeth or in our own minds thinking oh I need to explain this because otherwise Elizabeth won't get it or oh I I wonder whether I'll just dangle this out uh, there knowing that Elizabeth won't. Uh, currently know what it's about, but we'll, you know, learn in a few weeks or whatever. And and so just that awareness of someone who's not part of the, the in group is so important. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, as you were saying, is absolutely a dynamic in churches that, that, that people come into our churches who don't understand the lingo, who don't understand the backs, backstory, as it were. Um, and we can either just carry on in our comfortable little niche and ignore them. And, and as you say, you know, we probably don't hang on to them. Uh, or we can actually engage with that and say, oh, I, I need to be thinking about how this person is going to hear this story or receive this ritual or understand this thing that we're doing as a group. And does it make sense? Yeah. I, I remember when I was um, living in... in, in um, uh, and a country town uh, and uh, minister in the congregation, 
we developed a, a, a circle of friends, um, a number of whom uh, were not regular attenders at, at our uh, church or indeed any church in the town. And just talking to them constantly, because we used to have a weekly gathering at our place, a barbecue where people would come along, and just constantly talking to these people, I became much more attuned so that I'd find myself walking into church services or into church meetings and, and thinking, oh, I wonder how such and such would feel about, you know, that decoration or this thing that we've just done uh, wow, that would be pretty pretty uh, obscure to them. They'd have no idea what was going on, and and I think actually Lindsay, that's Lindsay, good. Are you are you suggesting that ministers should get out more? Is that right? No, no. no I think we should stay cloistered <laughs> in our ivory towers and uh, and have as little to do with the world as possible. I think it is interesting if you have an unchurched person come in and you start to ask them these questions because that happened to me in WA. My, my granddaughter wanted to come to church and because I was in a church, my daughter would bring her on occasion and my daughter is a self-confessed atheist. And I asked her because I was curious about how she found being in the service and how she understood it. And she said, I don't get the, re the responsive prayers. She said, I don't get you say a line, they say a line. I don't understand why there's a tiny bit of a story read from the Bible and then you say a lot about it and I don't actually get how they necessarily connect. And she said, and the hymns are awful because they've got more words than notes in the music. So you're always trying to fit <laughs> extra syllables and words in. Mm. It was very interesting what she picked up on as alien when I asked mm. her about that, um, and they may not have been things that would have necessarily occurred to me. But there's also, I guess, a sense in which um, um, on both sides of that discussion that, that we do tend to go in with a, with a particular framework or agenda. And so, so um, whilst church communities may be largely uncritical um, and and allow their credulity bone to be stretched, there's also a, a, a sometimes an overly critical um, idea that might come from people who have got a, a bone yeah. to pick with the church. So so if you if you look for problems in any story, you'll always find them. Um, and uh, and that's one of the big things of fandoms that we've struggled with over the years is that often fans have ended their own series by actually being overly critical uh, and uh I mean, Firefly is a classic example of that, where where there were a whole bunch of things in that that were actually um, a, a wrestle and a struggle um, and 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 oddities to try and get your head around, uh, and that there was such a a, a a narrative of criticism that it didn't make it through its first season, um, which was really sad because I think it had a lot of promise. And it was interesting. I was listening to a, a Doctor Who podcast the other day, and and there was discussion about the current season of Doctor Who, uh, which I think it's mm. probably true to say um, uh, is more than uh, some of the previous um, series uh, helmed by Chris Chibnall, leaning into the the Doctor Who uh, mythos. And and there was this discussion about the the last episode where you know there was. Uh, uh, some uh, pictures of Xylons and um, and um, uh, uh, what are they called? The ones that say exterminate, uh, Sontarans? exterminate, oh, exterminate, Daleks, yeah. Daleks, Daleks. Yeah. Daleks. Yeah, of course. Um, and 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 you know they come past in these huge groups. And someone on this podcast was saying, yeah, but, you know, if you're new to Doctor Who, you wouldn't have any clue about what what they are. 
And and my own thought was, well, does it matter? I mean, you know, you see these obviously menacing things going past in great groups. If you know they're Daleks, and you can remember the word Dalek, uh, then you go, oh, cool, Daleks. If you don't, you still know that they're a menacing group of things that, you know, our characters have got to watch out for. I I really think sometimes we get too hung up on, you know, giving the whole backstory. And, And I was reminded of a a missionary enterprise that I was shown a, a film of where they went into this New Guinea um, tribe, uh, but they, they didn't talk to them about the gospel until they had taught them for two years about sheep and uh, Middle Eastern deserts and, uh, you know, Abraham and, and what is a Jewish person. And they did all this sort of backstory before they said, okay, two years later, we'd like to tell you about Jesus. And, and uh, you know, I just thought, oh, my goodness, you know, couldn't you just say, like, uh, I love the godly play thing about, you know, there was a, a, a person who wandered around and said such wonderful things that people um, followed him and, and wanted to hear what he had to say and, you know, get into the story like that. Well, I just think that what entry points you allow in a story probably makes the difference, Lindsay, and it's the same as the church. What entry points do you actually make for people to engage? I don't think they need the whole backstory. They just need an entry point. Yep. Well, we have been we've been very pleased to provide you with an entry point into this story <laughs> um, and and this this universe, Elizabeth. It's been wonderful to actually have that there. And and I think that is that is the point. The point is is that um, the question, I guess, the way to assess whether or not the credulity of things uh, is is balanced or not is actually to say, does it exclude entry? Um, and and um, or does it promote discussion? And I actually, I think that's 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 probably the best test uh, in terms of assessing these kind of things is to say, does it shut the conversation down or open the conversation up? And and I think at all times we want to be opening conversations up rather than shutting them down. I'd agree, and I think it does open the conversation up. The fact that I find certain plot twists. Totally implausible. It's really neither (laughs) neither here nor there. (laughs) I mean, we can still talk about it and we can still talk about what the story thinks it's trying to say. So that's... Oh, I look forward to it (laughs) Uh, every week. So... Uh, and and so do so do the crew at Guff, um, who 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 wait for the messages to come in. So so going back to the story, um, one of the things that struck me was um, when they're on this planet and they're wandering around um, and uh, they come near the caves and and there's the pile of bones and I, I think you referred to them, Elizabeth, as the warning. But the thing that struck me about the bones wasn't. Clearly, this is a warning, you know, something here is eating people and leaving bones. Um, the thing that struck me was that uh, Neelix says, oh, we'll gather them up and we can make tools out of them or whatever. And, and I contrasted that with, um, you know, the same crew in a, a very early episode in Emanations when, uh, you'll remember, they got beamed to the cavern, which they worked out was actually a burial place. And, and, and yeah. they were so concerned about you know treating uh these remains properly that Chakotay even says you know don't use your tricorders that's too invasive um and and here Neelix is saying let's grab the bones and you know sharpen them up and make them into weapons and tools and I just thought that was a bit odd 
my question, uh, my comment about that being a warning sign, Neeling himself says, well, he said, this is obviously a do not disturb sign or some such. He says it himself, mm, so then leaves a lone crewman there. What were you to thinking? To disturb it. <laughs> Well, I, I've got a, I've got a theory on this. Um, I have. We know that Neelix is jealous. That potentially off screen, that that Hogan has been getting bad reviews <laughs> oh, about Neelix's cooking, um, and that that Neelix has actually um, set this scenario up to to get rid of Hogan on purpose because he doesn't want his reputation to be impugned about uh, his cooking. Well, his I never liked Hogan anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I never and liked Hogan Neelix's anyway. And and it's yep. interesting that he he has no first name. He's just Hogan, um, yep. provisional ensign, uh, you know, because he was a marquee, uh, played by the actor Simon Billig, uh, and had eight outings on Voyager. So you know he he was a regular. He came back and we were getting to we know were him. Getting well, to we, know we him. know he's doomed. Well, you you do know he's doomed. But Janeway <laughs> says he was a fine officer and a good man. Oh. And we get to use his uniform to make water, That's so right. that'll be even better. That's great. Oh, Waste dear. not, what not. It does raise the, the question of how we deal with human remains, though, doesn't it? You know, and, and particularly as uh, Christians who typically, as we said last week, have a view that, you know, if, if we continue to be present, it's as some spiritual form. Uh, rather than reanimated bones wandering around like a D and D game, um, it, it's it's an interesting thing then the way we tend to treat human remains and and the the care that we take, uh, and it's obviously symbolic of something something deeper and something other than uh, purely how we treat you know some biological matter. I think that's mm. right. Um, I've been listening to the Sons of Korah recently. Because uh, I quite like them, and if you know who they are, you'd know they put all the psalms to music. And I was struck by the number of psalms that make it really clear that human remains are considered sacred, and the and disposal of them in the correct way is considered sacred because of all the threats about wild animals getting bodies or or um, mm. wild animals, you know, being left to clean up the battlefield and that's obviously seen as a curse and a very very bad thing so this is a very ancient concept i think mm. of you know disposing of human remains in particularly um sensitive ways but well, i mean in a sense you know other cultures might suggest that being eaten by um the food chain is the best way for us to to re-enter and replenish the energies of the process. I, I love that line by Neelix that said um, when Chakotay came, they're trying to work out what to make of us. And then he quickly adds in, well, not in a culinary <laughs> sense, I think, I hope. <laughs> like, but, but there is that sense in which, you know, we, we do um, come from the earth, we return to the earth. So there's some interesting dynamics there about, about the fact that, like, uh, personally, uh, you know, I, I like the idea of, um, of being buried under a planted tree and letting the tree actually re, um, re reclaim um, my, um, my atoms. Um, I suspect yeah. that's a pretty modern concept. Most ancient societies don't do that. Their burials are quite mm. ritualistic. They are, one, they're mostly yep. burials, at least in Europe. Um, it's different in some of the eastern countries like India. Um, and they obviously buy what they put into graves or burial sites like caves. It's a very respectful kind of thing. 
Although I was reminded the other day, I was watching the the movie Finch, um, and uh, I, I was reminded because uh, one of the characters talks about a Viking heritage of the the sort of a Viking and Norse um, way of burying people by burning them, you know, on a, oh, yeah, a, a yeah. pyre, and 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 I wonder whether you know, Will you talked about. Um, the fact that we go back to the earth, and in fact, that's part of our, our Christian liturgy in many traditions, is to talk about yeah. ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Um, uh, a quote from the Psalms, but um, uh, it's almost like that's a natural process, and what we don't want is for that natural process to be interfered with by a, a, a jackal coming and dragging the bones away and eating them or whatever. Uh, we we know that the bones will return uh, to the soil, but we want that to happen in a, a peaceful, natural way, not in you know some disturbed way. Are there also some um, some uh, health and safety issues that we're actually talking about too? If we've got you know, pieces of bodies and bones littered around the place we're trying to live, then there's more likelihood that diseases and other things might continue. And I, I was taken the other day, I've been watching The Walking Dead, and there's almost a, a religious ritualism in The Walking Dead now where after somebody does die, a knife is put through their brain. And the purpose for that is that, that they, they don't want them to rise up and walk around as zombies and come back after them. Um, so I, I wonder whether or not there are there are there are practical health and safety reasons for, for some of the religious rituals that we have in place as well. Possibly, though I think in ancient times, practical health and safety, apart from keeping wild dogs from being around your campsite, um, don't come into it a lot. But I think that there's also taking into account there's a belief in an afterlife, and it's clearly many, many, many cultures saw that the body went into the afterlife with what they mm. left with it. You know, there's actual, in the Egyptian tombs, you don't only just have things like utensils and day-to-day -day necessities that the person might need. You killed off his servant, so they'd be there to serve him in the afterlife. So it's not just about disposing of something cleanly or healthfully. It's a, there's a yeah. whole ritual and a whole belief system attached to this. Mm. Well, while we're on an, an anthropological sort of uh, streak, there was a, an interesting um, back and forth I noticed between Tuvok and Chakotay, um, where uh, Tuvok says, um, you may find nobility in the savage, but he's only interested in killing you. And, and Chakotay <laughs> says, I don't believe that. And and I thought that was an interesting interchange, both that that uh, idea which which comes up and I think has been part of, of Western uh, mythology in a way about the noble savage. Um, mm. uh, but then, you know, that uh, is it the case that um, uh, societies which we might judge as more primitive are, are only interested in, in killing others or, in fact, do they share the same human uh, predilections both for tribalism but also for altruism and for reaching out beyond your tribe and and uh, and, and finding peace with others. What's the message we get here from this one? I mean, there were some interesting exchanges um, when Chakotay walks down into the village and the, 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 the older wise one holding the claw offers him 
their female in exchange mm. for their female. Like there's some some peace child kind of uh, um you know uh, alliance kind of stuff. You know we'll we'll bond our were they attempting to bond their tribes together by actually doing that? Um, so there's some interesting things in there, and I agree with Elizabeth. Some mixed messages as well in terms of how they actually fit together too. Yeah, and I thought that. I mean, the poor dudes who were playing those Neanderthal-type people, they really were up against it in terms of trying to act that in a realistic way. And I did find that kind of ruined some of the scenes for me, especially the lava scene. Come on. <laughs> Sorry. It was a bit comical. It was. Um, <laughs> yeah, but they were also attempting to, I guess, parody or pantomime what what their image or understanding of primitive was. I mean, they're... Their their script would have just said behave in a primitive, uncivilized exactly. manner, probably. Um, you know, grunt and screech, jump around and run into each other. Like they they probably didn't get. They certainly didn't have many lines, no. and the lines they had were insensible. I also wondered where the universal translator had gone. Mm. Like, mm. is that reliant on the ship? Um, Isn't it in there? It's built into the combat. I thought it was in there. Yeah, combat. but they took yeah. the so combat. No, no, no. They the case on took all the combat badges. Took them. Yes, yeah, okay. That's right. Oh, there you go. So they didn't have access to that technology. No, they did Fair not enough. have access yeah. to that technology. But I, for me, it raised the questions, and this always comes up when I'm discussing with some dear little slightly racist person about First Peoples in Australia um, and, and looking at it. And I've had people say to me, but they benefited from colonisation because we bought literacy and we bought this way of Smallpox. Exactly. But my point is to them is how are you judging what civilization is? Mm. What makes literacy better mm. than what was already in place that was working perfectly adequately um, and peoples were living in a happy manner, they were on they had enough to eat, they were satisfied with what they had. Why is what you call civilization a superior way of being? And I think it it comes down to how you define these words and what you see is superior, probably your own tradition. But I think that that's not thought about enough. Well, not only that, but it's a rewrite of history. I mean, to infer that the literacy rates of 200 years ago are the same as the literacy rates as they are today is actually just ridiculous. Well, of course it is. Um, so, so, and the same with technology. It's kind of like I've heard people say, "Oh, oh, yes, but they wouldn't have TVs and cars and and, um, and 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 healthcare." And I'm kind of going, "Well, there wasn't TVs and cars and healthcare when uh, when the, the the Europeans arrived either. Um, they they've all uh, all, all been evolved, mm. invented, discovered since then, and we've actually actively set up systems to prevent." Um, first peoples from having access to those things right. during our time here. So, so it's actually a revision of history that that um, that that doesn't actually bear up. It's anachronistic at its core. Yes, it is. And, and, and getting I'm, folk to understand that's very difficult. I'm sure, Will, that you've already uh, quoted uh, on our episode sometime Douglas Adams and that lovely little passage in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where he talks about how. Uh, men uh, and women had always assumed that they were superior to the dolphins because they built cities and had wars and all that sort of stuff, whereas the, the dolphins thought they were superior because they just swam around and had fun. Yep, exactly. Yeah, we've had the dolphins <laughs> pop up several times. So, so long and thanks for all mm, the fish. Yes. Mm. Indeed. Um, oh, one area I wanted to talk about um, was 
the captain um, and her overreach several times in this. Um, that moment where she picks up the bugs and she's making a threat, I think, you know, you go and tell them that anyone who refuses to eat bugs and then it's almost like going, well, we should have written another line here because we actually don't know exactly what it is, how this line finishes. But it, but then it finishes it with the words, is under orders to do so from the captain. It was kind of like I'm expecting this ominous threat of punishment to pull everybody in line and all it is is tell them I told them to. <laughs> like it was, it was kind of like, yeah, I, I, I just didn't. She wasn't functioning um, in her usual stately manner, I think, in this episode. I think she, I, I mean, my head cannon is saying she's really thrown by losing the ship. But but I, I just saw her not not being the captain I know, I've know i known her to be over the last two seasons. Yeah. I agree with that. There was a bit of a freneticness about, you know, like when they yeah. get dumped. And it's almost before the ship has even taken off, she's sort of, you know, assigning people into groups and and uh, giving, you know, orders about what they should do. And, yeah, you, it's almost like, you know, there's this sense of I, I have to do something, um, whereas perhaps what mm. would have been good would have been to actually gather around and say, oh, how are we all feeling, you know, you know. Uh, we're going to get through this. Let's let's hang together and then move into the more practical things. Yeah, and look, and Hogan, for, stay away from that cave. And so. Look for skill sets, as you said, Lindsay. There was an assumption that the hierarchy had the skills. And when did Neelix become one of the hierarchy that he gets to order the crew around? That surprised me. Well, he's the advisor to the captain. He's a he's a subject matter expert. Uh, yeah, right. Um, but yes, I agree. I, I think that was an overreach. Yeah, I thought so, and I, I thought Janeway was out of character. And in some ways, I thought Chakotay was became a bit caricatured at mm, points too. Mm. Yeah, I, like I mean, I, I, I think I think that's right. And you know, it, uh, full full credit to Voyager that they wanted to explore someone, uh, you know, with a, a different background that that wasn't Anglo. But I think mm. sometimes it does fall into that caricature, and I I think they try to take the edge off that by having it be Chakotay who makes the comment about he's the only Indian who can't start fire or whatever. But but there is still that 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 sense of you know having having worked out well this is what Indians do, so you know. He either yeah. has to do it or not do it or whatever. And he should do it well. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so there's a lot of assumptions, I think, that are riding on particular things. And there was a lot of assumptions then made, like when Chakotay says, my tribe never used a bow and arrow. And Tuvok says, I didn't make it for you. I happen to be a bow and arrow expert yeah, you know, yeah. back home on Vulcan. So that, I thought that kind of put that stereotyping back into its box. So yes. that was a nice line. Yes, yes. So what did we think about the uh, the whole Lon Suda, um, you know, coming to redemption? Uh, you know, was that satisfying? Did that work for you? Uh, pretty much. I figured they'd have to get rid of him because they can't really keep him locked up in his room for 70 years. That's really going to be a liability come something. So I thought disposing of him in this honourable matter, I mean disposing of the character, it did work quite well for me and his struggle as he fights his demons and what he has to do was quite touching, I thought. Mm. And his final gesture, while totally unbelievable, is still this noble gesture in that he, he kind of saves the day by pushing the right button. Now, how he knew to do it, who knows? But, um, yeah, I, I quite like that. 
I uh, I get that um, that um, when we release this, will it'll be uh, early February. But when we're recording it, we're coming into Advent. So uh, the Lon Suda stuff really gave me those uh, Christmas movie feels. Mm. Um, as he uh, stood there with the weapon, diehard style, about to take <laughs> back the Nakatomi complex. Um, you know, as one of my favourite Christmas movies um, is uh, is uh, um, Bruce Willis in Die Hard, and I, I kind of felt that they were really going for that kind of lone. Uh, heroic, questionable individual, ready to to take take down a greater threat and a greater evil. So that was good. My only concern with that is that the narrative seems to imply that the best that psychopaths can hope for is a noble or honourable mm. death. Yeah. Um, so that's not so good if you're a psychopath. Um, the the idea that well you have this neurodiverse um, brain that means that um, society's only hope for you is that you die yeah, well. Yeah. No. Look, I I entirely agree, but I do need to just um, put a parenthesis around that and 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 point out, Will, that uh, you said we're going to release this in February, but you'll remember that last time we actually made the offer that if we can get an extra five patrons uh, to uh, sign up, we'll we'll release it to uh, patrons uh, uh, early. So you know if you want it, if you want to find out what we have to say, why am I saying this? Because people are going to hear, hear this. <laughs> <laughs> We're trapped in our own temporal anomaly. <laughs> so 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 what we will. <laughs> If you're hearing this message, then then you will. <laughs> you two are turning into a Star Trek script. Honestly. Oh my gosh. We we just. <laughs> and look what you've done, Will. You're going to kill Lindsay. Shame on you. <laughs> We've just created our own continuity error. So, if you, if you have just heard this, then 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 you will know. That we have been successful, unless I turn into a bonus feature. I might turn this whole section into a bonus oh, feature, dear. so that the patrons can hear what they might be missing out on, or may not be missing out on, depending on how the future. And turns we were out. so proud of ourselves too, you know. Will says, "Well, why don't you you talk about that, Lindsay? Because it's good to hear it from different different voices." And halfway through, I look. But wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I think that the church has a long history of retrospective encouragement, uh, where, where we say, "Well done to somebody for for, for doing something." Well, congratulate somebody in an encouraging way for doing something they did completely on their own. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe that's a factor there. Well, I, I'm sure you'll do something interesting <laughs> with the with the uh, the foregoing, uh, but to come back to Lon Suda, then I, I agree with you, Will, that that for me. This played into the whole um, the the myth of redemptive violence sort of stuff, like you know that that the way he redeems himself is by being violent, um, and and I agree with you that it's a bit of a it's a bit of a sad understanding that there is no way for him to actually go through a process of you know mental restoration and social restoration and actually. Uh, come to being a fully functioning human being, uh, and instead the best that we can hope for is, oh, well, we need some violence now, so let's uh, roll out uh, Lon Suda. Um, and and I, do think that, I do think that's unfortunate, uh, but falls into 
um, you know, a, a whole group of, of narratives that we regularly trot out. I thought that it was necessary. I, I, I see what you're saying, but, I mean, if you're going to have someone survive on the ship who's sneaky enough to remain undetected and has the capacity, it's taken over by Kazon. The doctor is being practical when it says it's probably going to involve removing them at some point if we want to regain control of certain things. And there was just this brutal kind of um, recognition of that fact. More, and I thought it was a shame that Suter doesn't get to redeem himself by working with Tuvok and growing his plants and his vegetables and doing all of that. But he's just a character that is going to become a either has to disappear into oblivion and then we're asking each week, well, what about that bloke locked up in his room? Or they've got to get rid of him. So as a kind of plot, he becomes the hero you lay on the sacrificial fire to actually reclaim the ship and, yeah. I guess I saw it as a necessary plot twist. But we do often do that with neurodiversity. We we just hope that it will go away so that it will be simpler. You know, when, when we when we discover that that somebody, you know, that there's a whole range of books about how to remove toxic people from your life. And then I'm thinking to myself, okay, does that mean that there's going to be a toxic people colony out there where they'll all just be toxic to each other? And is that what we want? And should we call that Canberra? Um, <laughs> no, we sorry, should not because it's not like that at all. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I did that on purpose. Yes, I know. Um, <laughs> and you've got the reaction you were looking for, so be pleased with yourself. But but there is that sense in which you know, like I I I kind of wonder wonder what Christ like. Even when if we're going to take an atonement for perspective, which often you know I don't like to take, but but even if we're going to entertain that, didn't didn't Christ die for Suda's sins? Why does Suda have to die for them too? Um, so it even fails under an atonement theology perspective to say. That, that that his redemption can only come through his violent death. Well, his redemption comes through his heroic actions rather than his violent death. I think that's the narrative mm. that the writers want us to take on, not so much his yep. violent death. Um, yeah, well, that's how I understood it anyway, and it might not have been what he exactly wanted, but, yeah, I don't know. And what do you do with him plot-wise? Tuvok says it very well. May you in death, uh, may death, your death bring you the peace that you could not find in life, right. which was actually a really interesting um, way for Tuvok to put it. Um, but uh, I was really struck by the the real pain that was actually caused to Suta, yeah. like that scene where he's he's on the ground in the fetal position, trying to come to terms with the fact that he's had to actually go against all of his efforts. Um, to try and be a nonviolent individual, um, and uh, and 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 feels as he's he's feeling. I think there was one of failure. I think he actually feels like mm. he was forced into a position of of failing to achieve his his goals to be a better mm. person. But all all shout out to him or his character is that um, he doesn't want to be medicated. He wants mm. to be left with that pain and work through it. And I thought yep. that was actually a really brave thing for him to do, and I was quite touched by that. I think uh, one yep. of the interesting things that, that I noted was that all the way throughout, 
um, Suter stays looking kind of disheveled and wounded and whatever. And and I thought to myself, he's stuck there with the doctor. Why doesn't the doctor, you know, fix up his wounds before he goes out to do the next bit of the plan? And I think it was, uh, in dramatic terms, just adding to that sense that he is he is the outsider struggling through to to you know complete the mission. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I wasn't sure what I thought about that. Just coming back to uh, Tuvok's prayer, because he actually says, let me, you know, give him a Vulcan prayer, which then made me think, well, that's interesting that the Vulcans have a prayer about death bringing you the peace you never had in life, because uh, it kind of implies that there must be all these non-peaceful Vulcans, uh, you know, for whom death is is the only piece, uh, which, which is not the way we typically see the Vulcan race. I thought maybe it was something in their past because we know the Vulcans in the past, well, I understand them to be quite violent and they've learnt to suppress those things. And I thought it might have been one of those ancient things that people hang on to. Yeah, I'm coming to see the Vulcans as very similar to Dr. Bruce Banner um, as the Incredible Hulk, where we get that great line in the MCU universe where they're asking him, how do you deal with the rage and anger um, You know, when that happens? And he says, well, I'm angry all the time. And I kind of get that impression from, from Tuvok and Spock and T'Pol that, that, that they're, they're working really hard to control this fury that actually exists within them all the time. Um, and that that perhaps that that wrestle and struggle for the Vulcans is a lifelong endeavor um, that they lay down in death. Um, so that's kind of where I went with that with the prayer. Mm. That makes sense. Mm. So I wanted to just deal with one more thing, and we kind of touched on it earlier, but I think we need to unpack it. And that's that's the whole issue of lies and deception. Um, the Doctor actually, you know, is asked a point blank question: Are you capable of lying? And then, um, uh, so unbelievably, deceptively, confesses that he can lie, but then lies about the extent to which he can lie by lying about it. It was really an interesting understanding of, of that. And, and the idea that he said, well, you know, it's, it lies are necessary, I thought was a really interesting um, thing for us to discuss about the necessity of lies and deception. They are necessary. Society can't run without lies. This is something I discovered when you do ethics and when you do other things, and um, particularly with children. If you want to go around being brutally honest to everyone all the time, society will fray. That is, its whole fabric will fray because our society and conviviality and our ability to actually get on with people is based on such lies. They're not necessarily great big ones, but if my best friend is going to be beaten up by a bully and I know he's hiding somewhere and the bully says to me, where's so-and-so, I'm going to say, I don't know. That's a lie. Mm. But it saves yep. my friend from being beaten up. If Arnie Mildred gives me some ghastly scarf and she's made it herself and she says, do you like it? I'm not going to hurt Aunt Mildred's feelings by saying, I think it sucks. I'll say, well, Aunt Mildred, that's a really interesting colour choice you've made there. You know, oh, I, I so, like that. So does does that mean that if I'm actually buying a new submarine and I've found one that I like better um, and I don't <laughs> tell the people I was buying it from that I'm going to go with the other one, I mean, is that an okay lie no. or is that like... 
So, like, there is a line here somewhere. There is isn't a there? line. And, um, it's about what is I, good for the whole and what is not good for the whole, and what is actually where you've crossed a line because you're being morally bankrupt, or when you're yeah. actually protecting someone's well-being or their feelings. Look, I, there's still a question about who determines that, too, isn't there? That's I mean, right. I'm, I'm not advocating for either side, but but the reality is, a person might firmly believe that they're actually acting in the best interests of their whole. Um, and and actually um, uh, tell a lie for that perspective. And, and I think, uh, I mean, I agree with everything that um, uh, you said, Elizabeth, and, and your comments, Will, but I just want to dig a bit deeper because I think we've already in this podcast uh, on a number of occasions begun to dig into a different way of thinking about the way we use language um, and, and the whole idea of is something a lie or is it not depends on this sort of binary, you know, black and white, something's true yes, or it's not true. Right. And and I think as we've explored story, both through the story of Star Trek and stories of scripture and whatever, we've come to recognise that there's actually a much more greyness and, and that that it's not a case of this is true and this is not true. Uh, there's actually different ways in which something can be true and there's different um, people who have perspectives on whether something is true or not. And there's there's mm. just a whole lot of, of greyness there uh, that I, I don't think is captured by either a yes, lies are okay or no, lies are always wrong because it, you're still mm. falling into the trap of thinking that any given uh, speech act can be categorised either as a lie or as a deception. Yeah, mm. I think that's yep. right, Lindsay. I think it's a spectrum and it, it goes from probably black to white and there's a lot of grey shades in between. And and people lie because, as I said, it, it's necessary at times. It does preserve society. It does keep us working together and being in a way that we can tolerate each other. However, I... And how good is the doctor at it? I mean, honestly, <laughs> you know, when, when Seska comes to him and... and, and says, I've caught you in a lie, he actually then responds to that by actually trotting out four more lies in quick succession. That's you know? and, right. And, and so, <laughs> so I, I learned something really significant, that if you're caught in a lie, <laughs> tell as many lies as you can very quickly, and then you'll confuse your opponent. They won't know what to believe, um, and they'll have no idea what the truth is. I thought that was a very, very interesting tactic for the doctor and a frightening one for an AI to be able to employ. Yeah, I guess we trust some AIs and not other AIs. I didn't trust the robots that uh, Balanus was captured by and working on, but I trust the doctor as an AI. So it's partly, too, how you see what they say will depend on the relationship you feel you have with that character or person. I, I think that does raise an interesting question, though, because I think um, in, in highlighting the way the doctor lies and that he's an AI, um, it, it does uh, bring to mind that I think there is a psychological aspect to lying, and there is a, a in in um, most humans, uh, there there is a, a a desire not to lie more than we have to, and so I, I found it yeah. fascinating, Elizabeth, that even in your example of your aunt Mildred, who gives you the horrific scarf, you didn't just yep. lie and say, "Oh yeah, Aunt Mildred, I love it; it's great." 
um, you know, which would have been a, a, a lie that would have kept her happy and, and done that good thing. In, instead, you sort of said, oh, it's really interesting, you know, and it, it's that, <laughs> it's that, you know, I don't want to lie if I don't have to. And if I can find a way to say something which, which is uh, true or truer, but, you know, doesn't actually address the question, I'll do that. And, right. and of course, our politicians become absolutely adept at, at, at that and, and never answer the question and always say something else. Yeah, you're right. They do. They're very adept at it. They've got a script. They stick to it. They deflect and they repeat things and they'll do anything but answer the question. And we've learnt that well as a society. And in their case, it is not serving us well. It serves me well with Art Mildred and it tries to keep what's left of my conscience intact in some way. But I don't know, most politicians have a conscience. It doesn't seem to be. Oh, wow. Ouch. <laughs> I, am hoping, I am hoping that the invention of Aunt Mildred is a deception, that there's no actual no, Aunt Mildred No, there is no actual there is, Aunt Mildred. No, I, no, no. I was going to say, look, you know, um, we, we, we hope you're enjoying the podcast, Aunt Mildred, because... Um, <laughs> Yep. Um, I have no yep. Aunt Mildred. Absolutely. <laughs> so it's fine. I just made her up for the purposes of it. But the child being beaten up by the bully potentially, that was actually one of the first ethics class I taught in primary ethics because I said to the children, is lying okay? And they all said, no, you should never tell lies. And I said, well, I'll tell you this story. What would you have done? Oh, I wouldn't tell the bully where my friend is. Is that a lie? And, of course, you get a really good discussion mm. from mm. children mm. looking at that. So... So we're eroding the ground underneath the thou shalt not lie perspective. What about thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not, you know, like, we, we you know, uh, are there, uh, is there a time for these things as well? Uh, and, 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 you know, subjectively, objectively, intersubjectively, how do we actually, how hard is it to be a human and make these decisions about what's okay? Well, we've just had the conversation about Lon Suda murdering, you know, Kazon and, and uh, that yep. that might have been required by the circumstances, even though it was uh, uh, not a good outcome for Lon Suda. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think, you know, in human ethical terms, we're always, always on this cusp of subjectivity and working out, you know, mm. what is the contextual uh, requirement and, and how does that change what my ethical obligations are? I think that's right. You know, if you've got someone lunging at you with a knife, you'll probably try and do everything to protect yourself. Or if they're lunging, trying to take a child off you, you'll do everything to protect that child. So, I mean, in many ways, how we act is quite circumstantial. And you'll do something in one circumstance you would never consider in normal life as carries on well and in some of those circumstances you've just listed elizabeth we probably are also acting instinctively uh, yes. r rather than considering ethical stances and, and making a, a judgment well that's why we have different categories of murder because if you've plotted something over a number of weeks and bought stuff on the internet and put the bomb together and done all this stuff well you're going to get first degree murder because it's premeditated it's aimed to kill where if someone's attacked coming at you with a knife and you accidentally kill them in protecting yourself, it's still murder, but it will be a reduced grade, mm. if that's the right word. Wouldn't it be so much easier if we just lived in an idyllic garden where we just had to eat food and uh, hang out with each other and follow, follow clear 
robust rules that meant that we didn't didn't have to encounter any of these subjective solutions. Well, it might be, Will. I've never actually done it, and it might be that I would like doing that. People say, would you really like doing that? Well, I've never tried it, so I don't know. Just and don't eat the apple. if I didn't know apple. anything different, that's it. Don't eat the apple. If I didn't know different, <laughs> I might think that was a really good lifestyle, like the dolphins. I had nothing to do except like the play. Dolphins. Yeah, that's it. And have fun. Well, as we're wrapping up, I, I can't help mentioning one bit of trivia that I came across because uh, this was an episode where we got to see a, a fair bit of um, of uh, Samantha Wildman, uh, you know, yeah. uh, caring for her, her baby and uh, uh, baby Naomi Wildman. So I, I did a bit of digging and uh, Nancy Hower, who plays uh, Samantha Wildman, is, is a cool person because as well as being a working actor, uh, she also fronted two alternative rock bands, one of which was uh, titled Wench and the other of which was called Stella. And uh, Stella, although neither of these groups actually recorded anything um, officially, Stella did actually uh, become the opening act on a meatloaf tour of the UK at one stage. So they were they were up there, you know, old uh, Nancy Hower and Stella. Uh, and she also wrote uh, a um, unreleased rock opera titled Girl on Mars. And I now have this on my bucket <laughs> list that I want to find Girl on Mars and see what this rock opera was about. Uh, so I, I just thought a bit of a shout out to Nancy Hower, uh, uh, Ensign Samantha Wildman, who uh, plays a, a, an important part in this episode. Yes, she does. I uh, also would like to put a, a call out to our fans out there. If there's any fan fiction about what happens to uh, Seska's baby uh, and Marge Color, I mean, what a great story there is about the uh, the uniquely half Cardassian, half Kazon um, child who grows to adulthood and ascends to um, the the ritual of right of of, uh, of adulthood, uh, you know there could be a a, a rich uh, story there. Uh, if there is one out there, then I'd love to see it. Uh, send us a link. Um, there are better fanfic searches than I am out there, um, but certainly we um, have no idea what happens to this baby. We just leave them here in the Delta Quadrant and sail on into the stars. I am disappointed to learn there is not a future episode where he comes back to do his first, whatever it is the Kazons call it, his initiation of going and removing someone they don't like, that he, he doesn't come back with guns blazing for Chakotay. <laughs> We'd have to have some kind of temporal anomaly for that to happen because <laughs> there are only seven seasons of Voyager. Uh, or he, he perhaps he uh, journeys from one side of space to the other and uh, discovers these federations. The question is, would he grow up hating the federation? Would he even know of his mother? Would they speak of his birth? He's obviously going to grow up with different oh. features. Um, mm. And 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 uh, so, so there are all of these unanswered questions Um that uh, surround this uh, little baby colour. Well, I wanted to know if Marge Colour actually knew. Did she let on to him? Because she's clearly disappointed it's not Chakotay's. Did she actually let on to Marge Colour that it was he was the father? Mm. He takes mm. the baby. He so does take the baby. Obviously... And I wondered, is it mm. because it's the only thing he has left of Seska? Because he's clearly mm. grieving her. And I was a bit touched by that because I don't really like Marge Colour, but I thought that was a a sort of poignant moment, um, or does he take it because she's told him this is indeed your child, or is he saying, I said I will raise this child and raise this child I will? 
I don't know. Well, there you have it. Um, with a final moment of the episode, even Marge Kala gets uh, a measure of redemption uh, as we uh, journey onwards into season three of Voyager. Voyager. I've been Will Nicholas. I'm Lindsay Cullen. And I'm Elizabeth Rain. <laughs>